Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Cheryl Hamilton. And my dad says, be careful. And I'm like, Dad, I'm 24, which is a stupid thing to say to your father when you're living with him at 24. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to give a huge shout out to three of our newest Patreon patrons, Ruben Medina, Timmy Red, and Christine Ross. Thank you guys so much. We are so appreciative to our Patreon patrons. We give a shout out every time someone gives $25 a month or more. You know, JC Cassis, the producer of Risk, and I recorded a little check-in that we posted on the Patreon about a month back. And several, several fans wrote in to say they were absolutely shocked to learn from that conversation how in need of money we are at risk right now to keep the show running. We're an independent business. We're not part of one of those big corporate networks with a big budget for producing podcasts. Right now, we have 931 patrons, giving us a total of $4,564 a month. And that's a huge, huge help to us. But remember, that only adds up to about $50,000 per year. And while that number is amazing, that's only really, you know, a little more than enough to cover one person's annual salary. And we have over 20 people on our staff now. We have to keep the show going with other income sources, you know, like the live shows and advertisements on the podcast. But advertisers come and go, often very quickly. And it's not possible for us to do more than a couple live shows per month because they take so much work to do. That's why support from our fans via Patreon is the best way for us to have a reliable income source every month that doesn't require us to take on additional expenses and work. When you're a Risk Patreon supporter, you get access to an incredible amount of exclusive bonus Risk content that's only available to Patreon supporters. So right now, we have this goal of getting to 1,000 Patreon supporters and 5,000 in donations per month. If we hit that goal by November 15th, I'll make a silly song to celebrate it and put the song on the podcast. I can even give you a shout out by name in the song if you want. Just email me at kevin at risk-show.com to let me know. So head on over to patreon.com slash risk and become a patron for as little as $1 a month or $5 or $10 a month, whatever. And as soon as we hit our goals of 1,000 patrons a month and a total of $5,000 per month, I'll make that silly song and put it on the podcast. That's patreon.com slash risk. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Idris Ackamore and the Pyramids behind me now. We are calling this week's episode Evolution. These are three stories from three different cities from the Risk book tour that we did this past summer. Holy cow, if you have not bought the Risk book yet, you gotta do it. There is an audiobook version, there's an ebook version, and there's the paperback version. A lot of people are buying the paperback version as a gift. Think of the holidays. Very easy to buy, you know, 10 of those to give out to friends and family. For the holidays, there's something for everyone. There are funny stories, scary stories, beautiful stories, sexy stories. The book is just filled with surprises. You know, what you come to expect from the podcast, except that the stories have been reworked. Um, Six of them have never been heard anywhere else before. And there's the Q&As with the authors. Go get the book and get lots of copies for your friends and family. Oh, and really do review the Risk book on Amazon because that helps. That really helps when there's lots of good reviews for a book there on Amazon. That really helps establish its reputation. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from Jen Kamara, a story that she shared when Risk appeared in Baltimore last. But before that, another story from Christopher Hoffman. Christopher Hoffman has appeared on the show before, but it was a recording that was made with the phenomenal storytelling show The Mystery Box in Portland, Oregon. Now, this is another story that he originally shared there at The Mystery Box, but he did a new expanded version of it for us when Risk came to Portland this past summer. So this was really quite something. Chris has a book of his own called Heart in Gear, An Engineer's Erotic Journey to Freedom, that you can also find on Amazon. And here he is now with a story we call Tantrika. At 32, I still had not figured out how to do emotions. So I married a woman who actually didn't care about emotions. It had a nice project manager vibe. I started restoring the house, build a lovely nest for our family. But you know, to be honest, I never asked everybody to fully show up in it. But on autopilot, my, my wife would keep the house spotless, take care of the dog, pick up my daughter, Even the food was tasty, but I just wasn't happy. It went on for 20 years. All my punk rock friends dissolved into parents that I had no interest in. I went off on a rant during dinner about how I hated my new boss and my wife finally stopped me and said, you sound just like your father. (laughs) It was during this time that I started noticing the feeling of a hot ice pick up my ass. That went on for two years. My ex-wife used to make fun of me. I'd go shopping, and she'd like, you always know where the bathroom is. But I went to urologists and doctors, and I even endured having my shriveled-up cock stabbed in the eye with a foot-long stainless steel scope to look up my urethra into my bladder, only to find nothing. (laughs) I'll never forget the look on the office's faces as they tried to figure out what could possibly have gone on in that room to elicit such a blood-curdling scream. But I gave up on modern medicine, and I went and started going to wellness clinics. And it was there that I met Magdalena. I was holding the door open in the lobby as her, her thin body slipped past me. But I noticed this beautiful neck piece and her wild, crazy gray hair. And I said, hey, who are you? I'm Magdalena. What's your thing? What's your passion? I'm a tantrika. Oh, you mean like a a sacred practitioner of body, mind, and spirit, or a a teacher of the tantric lineage? No, not exactly. I'm more of a sex therapist that doesn't do a lot of talking. (laughs) So I told her my ice pick story, and she handed me her card and said, 
you should call me. I have a proven therapy for that. So I stuck that card in my wall and I drove around for months trying to figure out what's a tantrika going to do for me. I even asked my ex-wife for permission to call her and it still took me a month to make an appointment. She came to the door in a light sundress and a warm smile and we went into this little room and we filled out some forms about consent and some sort of erotic healing. I paid her a lot of cash (laughs) and we talked about some other disclaimers. And she led me up into this beautiful room. It had candles lit and wispy drapes. There was the smell of incense, Asian art on the walls, and this comfortable looking futon, and the sound of ethereal music playing. (laughs) And we sat on floor pillows and she held out her hands and she looked at me and she said, tell me, Can I ask you some questions? Sure. Does it hurt when you ejaculate? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, well then what we're going to do is a therapeutic prostate massage. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Okay. So she gets out her little hand and like leads me over to the foot of the bed and says, I'd like you to take all your clothes off and lay down face up Put your head on the pillows against the wall. I'll be back in a minute. So I'm taking off my clothes and I realize, shit, the last time I had an encounter with my prostate was in that little room with that hairy beast of a doctor, me in that gown open in the back, and he bends me over the examination table. I could hear the snap of like gloves and then that rattle of the Vaseline can. And without too much ceremony, two fingers go up my ass and probed around in there for what felt like and inordinate around the time. Until I looked back and I said, what in the fuck are you doing back there? Or he said, hey, I, I don't feel anything abnormal. Hands me a box of Kleenex. So I'm like... So I take my position on the bed. Magdalena comes in. She makes her way up, kneels down between my widened legs, and she says, Okay, Chris, you're the client and I'm the practitioner. I'm going to lead you through a therapeutic prostate massage. You're going to listen to my instructions, but at no point are you to touch me or direct any energy towards me. Do you understand? Yeah. Phew, what a relief. Because during my marriage, I mean, I'm always the one pushing for it. I'm always the one asking for sex, even though I'm in this crushing, like, anxious feeling of performance anxiety. But with Magdalena, what I saw was this beautiful woman in her power. I was trying to relax, but at the same time, I had this primal urge to run out of the room screaming. She started the procedure by running her hands around my chest. And then she laid my arms out on both sides on soft pillows. And then so gently, she ran her fingers all the way down my arms. And then whisked her fingers off the ends of my hands like casting off some unwanted spirits. She did the same thing around my waist all the way down my legs, casting off my feet. And then she settled back and looked down at my flaccid cock and said, may I touch you there? Okay. (laughs) So she dips her fingers into a bowl of warm oil and brings her fingers into contact with my cock. And in the most gentle touching, like stroking a baby rabbit, (laughs) 
It's this feeling that's entirely new to me. In my 20s, the encounter I had with women and my cock was they were usually yanking on it to try to get it hard before sex, right? And then in marriage, if I wasn't ready, it was up to me. I mean, as far as having my cock sucked, I mean, I didn't like it that much. I mean, it was like, did she really care? You know, am I ever going to come? What if my cock doesn't get hard at all? But with Magdalena, it was this beautiful sort of therapeutic feeling that was unattached to any outcome. It took me a while to sort of relax into my erection. But once I got there, she stayed with it for a long time. She coaxed me up onto this languid, dreamy state. At one point, she leaned forward and took the length of my cock in her folded hands as if in prayer. And she started breathing like fogging a mirror up and down my cock. And every time she got to the head, I started imagining what it would feel like for her lips to kiss the end of it to feel that erotic connection in the state that my cock was in. But my hands were holding onto the edge of that mattress tight as I resisted the urge to run my fingers through her hair. I knew my place in this. Don't disturb where this is going. So she finally opened her eyes and wrapped both hands around my hard cock and slid all the way down to my pelvis and out across and whisked her hands away. Then she said, I'm going to put my fingers inside you now. (laughs) 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 To massage your prostate. I need you to listen carefully to my instructions you will feel some pain. (laughs) So as I breathed out, she stuck her finger inside me up to the first knuckle. And the music in the room got noticeably more loud. (laughs) (laughs) So as she continued to push her fingers inside my opening, My voice took on this throaty resonance. <laughs> like, oh my God. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then two fingers are in my ass. And she hooks her fingers and starts pressing on my prostate. And she says, breathe. <sighs> okay. So there I am. I've got this woman with her fingers up my ass and me laying naked in a futon somewhere, and me marveling at how this woman managed to get me into such a vulnerable position. I was like, oh right, she stroked my cock and looked at me with those kind eyes. Works every time. But my judgment really started to get a hold of me, and I'm saying, who the hell does she think she is? But she knew. And what I started to discover was she had my medicine. She knew exactly where this was needed to go. And my fear that it wasn't going to look pretty. So I said, okay. So using muscles I didn't even know I had, I started like moving my ass around until I got the angle right to start managing the raising pain. She wasn't talking anymore now, she was just breathing. And the pain started getting so intense that I thought I was going to start hyperventilating. I mean, was this the wall I'm supposed to push through or is there another one yet to come? But she was up on all fours now. Her tracker beam eyes, my ass on a meat hook, and it all turned. 
And it all turned into this power struggle. I mean, two sumo wrestlers in a white line circle, you know, and two like towering, you know, elk with their horns down low, like scratching in the dirt. Magdalena had no intention of giving up at that moment. The more I resisted, the more she lifted up, as if to say, I'm going to teach you something whether you like it or not. Oh, and I felt it. I felt that searing pain, her medicine. But I gave it right back to her, my iron-fisted grip on my reality. But she was like an athlete, digging in for the final sprint, sweat running down her chest. And the dynamic between the battle being waged and the soft breasts of her chest was all I could do to fight against her. I wasn't sure if I was going to win this one, I thought to myself. As I started to waver, she was like Ali on me with, after a rope-a-dope exhaustion. She was dominating me with her silence. It was all pure energy by that point. The silent crack of her whip, the poke of her lion tapers prod, until my submission started to take over. And like a dynamite demolition of a Las Vegas hotel, my entire ego started to implode on itself. And I yelled, the curtains, swing the windows open, and let the summer breeze in, gone! There was so much presence in my body. There was nobody in my body but me. There was no more self-judgment. There was no anger. And the pain gone. Stay as long as you like, Magdalena said. And she walked out of the room. There was so much peace. The breath just flowing in and out of my lungs like little waves washing up on a sandy beach. I put my clothes back on in my emptiness, in my lightness. And I thought to myself, Magdalena's silent stare down was the most beautiful gift of love and compassion that I'd ever received in my entire life. And I even found a silence in my heart. I didn't have to say anything to anybody. And I'll never forget walking down the front steps to stand out on the street with my jaw hanging open thinking, what in the hell just happened? <laughs> but it's been over the last 10 years that I've come to realize that it's not the words that we use to fight for what we want. It's the space in between the words where we open ourselves to receive. It's in that silence, that emptiness, that I invite everybody here tonight to join me in loving ourselves just a little bit more and allowing those around us to just be who they want to be. Thank you.
Well, it's time for my milk. Boy, oh boy, do I like my milk. Let's talk about prostate massage. <laughs> oh, ah! oh, oh, ah! Somebody please touch my prostate in my butthole. Well, that would be very nice. So I can have a prostate orgasm. Yeah, I, I made this funny sound that I don't know where it came from. It was like, yeah! Hold up! I think my dick got stuck. Stone down. Can't get it up. Want me to fucking embust or nothing? You gotta stick a finger in my butt. how serious things were because of the cat. I was visiting my mom for the weekend, like I normally do, and we're talking before bed, and she says, look, look, he's out there, he's watching me. I was like, who's watching you? The neighbor, he's watching me, he's outside. So I look outside, expecting to see a 70-year-old black man, and I see a cat. So I was like, mama, there's a cat outside. She's like, no, no, it's a neighbor, he's been watching me, he's been doing witchcraft and transforming into a cat so he could watch me. Now my mom, she was a big personality. She always had jokes and she always kind of said off the wall things. So this kind of would have just been a normal thing because you know, she was a short woman. She made up for her height with her wit. And you know, I would just laugh at this any other time. But five years before this point, my father had passed away and she had become really, really, really paranoid and fixated on the neighbor. And she'd start saying, the neighbor, he's just so nosy. Why is he always paying attention to me? Why is he always just in my business? And she would talk about him all the time. Like the conversation would start about like, how's work? And then she's like, that neighbor, he keeps coming over here. And now she's talking about the neighbor transforming into a cat. So I was a little bit concerned, but I was like, you know what? She's still doing her day to day, so I'm not gonna be too concerned. Um, over the course of the next few months, I noticed other things that were changing. I'd call home and the phone wouldn't work and she'd call me back a couple days later and say, I had to change the phone because the neighbor, he got into the phone. And I was like, okay. Um, I'd come home and try my keys. My keys wouldn't work. And she said, I have to change the locks because I know he's gonna figure out how to get into the house. I'd come home and she has this state-of-the-art security system and she's like, I have to monitor all four corners of this place because the neighbor, you know, he's that cat and he's walking around, so I have to make sure that I can see what he's doing. So now I'm starting to get more concerned. So I reached out to my aunt and, you know, my aunt, my family's Nigerian and my aunt had been in the country for about 10 years at that point. And I was like, auntie, I'm a little bit concerned about mama because she keeps talking about this cat and, you know, the witchcraft and all of that stuff and she never really talked about witchcraft before. So my aunt said, Jenny, you're American-born. You don't understand these things. There is witchcraft, and we have to pray. That's what we need to do. We, we're going to fix it with prayer. And I was like, I just, I don't think that he's transforming into a cat and coming into the fucking yard. She's like, no, no, no. Just, you don't understand. We're going to pray. So they did. My aunt would call my mom, and they'd be on the phone for hours, like seven hours, just praying and praying and praying. My cousin, the healer, which is his own title, that's not my title for him, um, <laughs> He would come down from Jersey and he'd bring her holy water and tell her, you have to fast for the week. You can't talk to anybody and you're just going to pray. So they were doing that and, you know, I reached out to my friend who was a therapist and I was just like, hey, I'm, I want to know, like, when should I be really, really concerned about this? My friend was like, look, as long as she's doing her day-to-day -day and she's still going to work and she's still taking care of herself, everybody has some levels of paranoia. So you don't have to be too worried just yet. And I was relieved. So my little balloon of hope just started to swell because I was like, she is taking care of herself. You know, she's basically normal except for this cat thing. So you know what? I'm just going to let it go. So in November of that year, I go to visit her. And it was weird that she was even home that day. But she said, yeah, just come visit on Saturday. I'm not working. I took days off work. And I was like, hmm, you never take days off work. She's like, yeah, I just, I wanted to rest. So I was like, okay. So I go home, I see her, and she had lost a good amount of weight. You know, she was a heavier woman, but she probably lost about 20 pounds. The skin in her neck was just hanging. Her eyes were sunken in and dark, and she just looked fucking terrified. Before she went to bed, she went and got a chair, and she put the chair up against the door, and she said, oh no, the neighbor, he's gonna come in, so I have to stop him. 
Then she went to the kitchen and got a big knife and said, okay, I'm going to bed, and took the knife to her room and locked the door. My mom never locks the door when I'm home. So I'm like, there's something going on. So I, I'm nosy as shit. So I started to go through all of her shit on the table, looking through all her papers, looking through her purse, and I found a letter from her job that said that she was on administrative leave for a month pending an investigation of an incident that had happened. The incident was my mom was at work and she looked out the window and she saw a man in a van with a big gun and she said the neighbor sent that man to come kill me. So she locked herself in the bathroom for two and a half hours. So at this point I said, yeah, okay, I can't ignore this. And that little balloon of hope just started to get smaller and smaller. So I called my aunt again and I was like, look, we have to do something because now it's, it's external, it's outside, it's not just in the house. Can you at least just come see her? Like maybe if you see her, you'll understand that something is going on. So my aunt did, she came, she brought my other cousin, the gigolo, that's a whole other story, um, <laughs> brought him down, and we had Thanksgiving, and it was really strange, because my mom had always been this great cook, and she didn't know what to do. You know, her second job, after being a nurse, she used to cook at a rectory, and because she believed in child labor, I also used to cook at a rectory, <laughs> so my mom was up there, she would make the main course, and then I would make the dessert, and then I was like her little sous chef, and we used to just go back and forth, and now, this Thanksgiving, I'm doing all the cooking, I'm asking her to help me, and she's just looking very confused, and just standing there, just lost. So, my aunt said, you know, she doesn't look good. I said, that's what I've been saying. So, she's like, why don't we bring her to our house in the Bronx for a couple days? And I said, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. And again, my little balloon of hope just started to get a little bit bigger because I said, I've never taken her away from the house. So maybe if I remove her from the thing that is scaring her the most, maybe, maybe she'll be okay. So we took her to the Bronx and uh, she lasted three days. On the third day, my cousin's wife called me and said, Jenny, come get your mom. I said, what happened? She was eating and then she jumped across the table. She started to choke her sister and said, you're a witch, I have to kill you. So now, that balloon of hope is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Because now, it's not the neighbor. Because the neighbor wasn't anywhere there. Now, anybody's a witch. So I'm thinking, when am I going to be a witch? So I go pick her up, and I had no plan. I had absolutely no plan. I pick her up, and I'm thinking, I don't want to take her to my house because she's choking people. I don't want to stay with her in her house because she's choking people. I don't want to leave her in her house because now she's violent, and she's been fixated on that neighbor for so long. I don't know what she's going to do. So I'm just driving down the LIE, hoping for traffic so that I can figure this shit out. So as I'm driving, my mom goes, my heart, my heart, I'm having a heart attack. I need to go to the hospital right now. So I look for the exit, and I see glowing letters that say Mercy Hospital. And I'm like, that's really fucking convenient. I'll take it, though. So go to the hospital, and my mom, like I said, she had lost some weight, but she was still close to 200 pounds. She was a fucking sprinter. She is sprinting down the hall. The nurses, the orderlies, they're bouncing off of her one by one. Nobody can catch her. I'm behind her like, Mama, you have to stop. Mama, they have to check you out. Mama, your heart. Mama, please stop. She just is not listening to anything. As she's going, she starts saying, I need to find a priest. I need to find a chapel. I need somebody to bless me. My sister did witchcraft on me. So now I just see her getting farther and farther away because I stopped. And I realized that I, I didn't know who that person was. And I didn't know how to help her. I didn't know what to do for her. So I'm just standing there just crying. And the nurse is asking me what's going on. And I tell her everything. And she says, look, we'll try to admit her. If we can't, just take her home and tell them what happened with her sister. So that's what I ended up doing, and 24 hours later, she was admitted into a psych facility. Now, over the course of the month, I was working with the doctors, and you know, they were asking me all these questions. Did I notice anything growing up? Did I see anything? And I was like, no, no. You know, she said some random things. She was sad sometimes, but I didn't really notice anything. But as we were talking about it more and more, I realized that there were signs. But you know, mental illness is just not a thing, especially in the black and the African community. It's not a real thing. So I was like, oh, she's just being dramatic. Oh, she's just a little sad. It's not a big issue at all. So they told me that my mom was diagnosed with psychosis with paranoid delusions and severe depression. And the trigger was my dad's sudden passing. She never dealt with the death and then it manifested into all of those things. So after that, that diagnosis, you know, that really shook me because now I'm like, there is something wrong. Um, but the one good thing was we had a plan. She was on medication. She was going to do therapy. My family was, as you would expect, the healer did not accept the diagnosis. 
<clears throat> he would tell her, don't take your medication, don't go to the doctor. So I just kind of distanced myself from him and from the rest of my family because they just didn't want to deal with it. Now, after two years, my mom was hit with another big blow. Um, I noticed that her comprehension was not that great, her memory wasn't that great, and I thought, maybe it's just the medication. So I take her to the doctor and they say, she has early onset dementia. So now this diagnosis was much more difficult because I realized that I was gonna lose this person. You know, now she's talking about this cat, which we, I could talk about that cat all day. <laughs> um, but now I'm not gonna be able to talk to her about the cat because she's not even gonna know what the cat is. She's not gonna know who I am. So I had this sense of loss and then I had this sense of fear because I realized I'm just gonna be alone. Like both of my parents are gonna be gone and it's gonna be just me. So after this diagnosis, you know, my family, they were just kind of like, well, you know, we'll, we'll just deal with it. Just give her more vitamins, give her B12. And I was like, fine, I'll give her B12. Maybe that'll, that'll slow things down. But I did notice that, that things were not good and I saw her fading away over the course of two years. You know, she couldn't drive to places. She'd have to call the police for them to escort her back home because she didn't know how to get home. You know, she started only showering on one day because she was very preoccupied with saving money. And she said, I can only shower on Sunday because I'm going to church and you know, God wants a clean body. Okay. Um, the last thing was I found out that she was eating rotten food and I was home with her for a month and I saw her get this pot out of the kitchen and I had been cooking for her so I was very confused as to where that pot came from and she said oh I cooked this soup before and I opened it and it was just rotten chicken and she said no 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 I need to finish it and I said no mama it's rotten she's like no 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 I have to finish it so I'm fighting with my mom in the kitchen over this pot and I ended up taking a can of Raid and spraying it in the pot and that was what stopped her from eating that chicken now the thing that scared me the most in that moment was that I didn't know how long she had been doing that for because I didn't live with her so after this, I, I realized she had to be in a nursing home, and six months later, I did have her admitted into the home. My family was not happy about it, um, but I said, please just come see her. Maybe if you see her, you'll see why she has to be here. So they came for Mother's Day, and as you would expect, the healer was praying with her and telling her, don't worry, you're gonna go home. Everything is gonna be fine. I'm gonna heal you, I'm gonna fix you, you're gonna be 100%, you're gonna go home. So I hear him saying this, and I'm getting more and more agitated because this is the second nursing home my mom had been in. You know, she kept trying to leave. So they put her in one that had a locked dementia ward. So she had actually been okay in this one. She had built up a whole story about how she owned the nursing home and she worked with the nurses, so she would be with them with their little shift, helping them out. She had a little boyfriend named Michael. He's 90. They used to put their, their trays together so that they could eat, and she would say, he's not my boyfriend, but I'm like, Mom, every time I come here, Michael's in your room, so I think that he is. So she was, you know, kind of okay, and I just didn't want her to get agitated and start thinking about going home. So I start to, you know, tell my cousin, don't say that, and then we start going back and forth, and I see him start to shake, and like the veins in his neck just start to throb, and he was like, it's your fault that she's this way. It's your fault because you didn't have faith and you didn't believe. He could have smacked me across the face because that's what it felt like. And I mean, I blacked out at that point and there was a lot of fuck you and get the fuck out and you can walk your fucking ass home. There was a lot of that. Um, and you know, I had just about had it with him. But I think about that moment every time I go and I see my mom and I think about how mad I was at that time. But when I was thinking about this, I think I was also upset at myself in that moment because a part of me did think that maybe if I was there for her a little bit more, I could have been more helpful. You know, and I know that there's nothing I could have done about the dementia. You know, she did have signs of mental decline before and all of that stuff, but a part of me is like, you know, when my dad died, I left. You know, my friends helped me through my grief and I was all she had and I left her. So I do think about that. You know, when I see her today, I, I always look forward to those moments where I do get to see her personality and I see her, her chubby cheeks just light up and she says something that doesn't make any sense at all, but she thinks it's the funniest thing. Um, but the thing that kills me the most is that she's never gonna really understand how sorry I am that I couldn't have been there for her when she needed me. Thank you. Look 
This is Risk. This is Beck behind me now, and we just heard from Jen Kamara. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from, oh my gosh, such an important person in the storytelling community. Cheryl Hamilton directs Mass Mouth. That's a Boston-based nonprofit that promotes the art of storytelling. She also curates the TV show Stories from the Stage, and she teaches storytelling. you got to look her up at CherylHamilton.com. Here she is now at the Risk Live show that we last did in Washington, D.C. This is a story about sexual assault, among other things, and it's a story we call Fork Fight. So I'm 38 years old, and I'm standing in my boyfriend's kitchen, which kind of looks like an ad from Progressive Assurance. It has like white floors and white walls and white countertops, and even the dishes are white. And I'm holding the only thing that is essentially not white in the kitchen, which is a fork. And I am totally frustrated. You see, Chris and I have been dating for about four months, and we're having one of our first fights, and it's not going very well. Chris and I met on Match.com, like many people, and... Great. <laughs> and we met. And uh, when I first met him outside the public market in Boston, I was a little disappointed. He was kind of hunched over and he was wearing a gray, like, worn down sweatshirt with a hoodie. And I couldn't even tell if it was really him. But uh, when we got inside, because he was cold and we warmed up, he pulled his hoodie off. I thought, wow, <laughs> he actually looks like his photos for a change. And he's handsome, he has brown eyes and a goatee. And my niece thinks he looks a little bit like uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda. And, uh, yeah, also. <laughs> and as we walked through the market, I could tell I liked him because I was talking too fast and I was talking too much, um, which I never usually do. Usually I ask all the questions. And um, he eventually decided that we should go to a Korean restaurant across the street. And we sat there and I looked at him and we talked about world travel and his family from Iran and how I'm from Maine and uh, how we just love architecture and I remember being so happy when he went to the bathroom because I needed to breathe <laughs> and I was thinking about will he kiss me and when he came back to the table he suggested we go home and he did kiss me you know now I'm here in his kitchen four months later angry at him holding a fork let me explain Chris is an architect, and he spent two years designing this loft, and it is beautiful, and it is meticulous, because he spent two years picking out every paint chip, and every faucet, and every cabinet, so much so that I'm confused because we're having a fight because we don't know how to load the fork in the dishwasher, and I'm confused because if you spend two years meticulously picking out everything else, why do you buy a dishwasher that doesn't actually hold silverware? Yeah, so the little silverware tray that you put the spoons and the knives and the forks in, when you put them in, they fall through, they hit the glasses, they hit the plates, and then they're in the dirty water at the bottom. And you have to, like, dig in and grab them and pull them back out and start it, rinse and repeat, right? We've been having this problem a lot. So I sort of calmly say to him, the architect... Why don't we just take the fork and lay it down on the grate and just like the knives and it won't fall through. But he, of course, has a much better idea. He thinks we should take two forks and we should put them like back to back and like architecturally slip them into these like plastic grates so that they'll hold each other up like a fountain. Like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> but I don't want to be too defensive. It's our early fight. So I say, you know what? I'll appease to his logic. I said, what happens if I only have one fork? Then what? And he says, oh, that's not a problem. You just put it in the sink, and when you have a second fork, you go back and get the two forks, and then you put them in the dishwasher. <laughs> I am trying to smile at my very handsome boyfriend, and I'm not doing so well. I'm like, that's just stupid. I don't want to sit around waiting for another fork to appear. 
And I'm starting to get like, my throat's getting tight, and I hear my voice is racing, and I'm getting a little angry. And I'm getting a little angry because I realize that I think he's questioning my own ability to load a dishwasher. And I'm like, wait, wait, I know how to do this. I've done it my whole life. I, and, and he's like, why are you getting so upset? Because he is perfectly calm. He's as calm as he was on our first date. And now I realize that not only are we fighting about the dishwasher, but now I'm like, I'm not fighting well. So like he's calm and I'm erratic and I'm starting to be embarrassed. And I don't want to be the one that doesn't fight well, right? So I just take the damn fork and I throw it in the sink and I storm upstairs. And then I climb into bed and I pull the sheets over my head like I'm four years old. <laughs> and then I wait. And I wait because Chris is an incredibly kind person and he loves to communicate. And I know that in a few minutes, he's going to come up the spiral staircase. He's going to lay down behind me. He's going to put his arms around my waist and he's going to talk it out. And we're going to figure out this fork problem. But then he doesn't come upstairs. And I'm starting to wonder. I thought he was kind and I like, thought he liked to communicate. What's going on here? Did I date a dad? Like I start to all those crazy thoughts, right? But then I hear him move off the chair in the kitchen. I'm like, oh, okay, here he comes. But he doesn't come up the stairs again. This time, I hear him sit on the couch and turn on Modern Family, and now I'm pissed. <laughs> I don't understand why he doesn't want to make me feel better, and more, I don't understand why he doesn't want to stall this fork fight. Until this point, we've done pretty good at solving fights. And now, I, I feel that I'm going to start crying, like crying over this fork, and so I bury my face deeper in the pillow, and I think, oh God, what am I supposed to do? Because I'm really scared. I'm scared because I don't know whether I should tell him what I'm really angry about. 14 years earlier, I'm 24, and I'm sitting on my parents' couch in their house in Maine. And I'm watching the news. And I've been watching the news nonstop for four weeks since 9-11. Like so many Americans, I cannot seem to pull my eyes away from the television. I'm following every story of every family looking for a loved one. I'm watching those... EMTs and the firefighters run into the buildings rather than away. I just am stuck on this chair like I have been every night. But it's starting to not feel healthy. It probably wasn't healthy like two weeks ago, but I'm now, it's a Friday night, I have got to get off this couch. So I remember that there's a band playing at the bottom of the hill at this local dive bar, and I'm like, you know what, Cheryl, blues music, ironically, always cheers you up. <laughs> So I turn off the television, I say to my mom, you know what, I'm just going to go hear some music. And she says, have a good time, honey. And my dad says, be careful. And I'm like, dad, I'm 24, which is a stupid thing to say to your father when you're living with him at 24. <laughs> and I walk outside, and it is this beautiful October evening. The air is crisp. I don't need a jacket. It feels good. And I'm like, I don't want to drive. You know what, I can practically see the bar. So I walk down the hill, past the Denny's and the post office and the grocery store, and when I make it to the corner, I turn and I can see the big glass windows and the band inside, and it looks like everybody else in my hometown has also finally gotten off the couch because the room is jammed with people, and the band actually sounds better than I expected for Maine. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and when I walk in the door, it suddenly occurs to me, oh God, shit, I'm going to run into somebody from high school and that is the last thing I want. I don't want to say why I'm living with my parents and I just, I don't want to talk to anybody. I came here to escape. So I open the door and I find myself near the back holding onto the wall until I find a stool next to the bathroom. And I just, I order a drink and I listen to the music. And about five minutes later, this really handsome guy walks out of the bathroom. He's like blonde with blue eyes and those beautiful broad shoulders. And he looks like every guy I never dated in high school. <laughs> I was the uh, president of the choir and the French club. Yeah. And as he walks by, I'm not that same person anymore, and I have confidence, so I kind of smile at him, and he smiles at me. And it doesn't take him long to find the empty place next to me in the bar. And I quickly say, introduce myself, and he says his name is Tom. And about 15 minutes later, we're out on that dance floor dancing. And suddenly, New York and the television and CNN and everything feels so far away, and I feel so free. And it actually starts to feel like a high school reunion, because everybody is smiling and laughing and cheering and clapping, and, and when the bartender calls last call, there's like this collective groan in the crowd, like we've just, you know, ruined our evening. And in the crowd, dancing with me is a girl that I actually recognize from Red Lobster. She and I used to waitress together. And we talk about how that job sucks so much and that you should never actually eat at Red Lobster. 
Unless you want the cheesy rolls, those are pretty good. But everything else, don't eat it. And she and I are dancing, and she pipes up and says, wait, 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 I mean, there's another club in town. And she really does mean that, one other club in my hometown. (laughs) And she says, it's open for another hour, let's all go there, and we can keep dancing. And I'm like, yes! And then I say, oh shit, I don't have a car, I'm sorry, I walked down here, thanks, I appreciate it. And of course, everybody's like, no, no, jump in our car, don't worry about it. I know none of these people, of course, except for the Red Lobster Girl. But Tom, he just taps my shoulder, and he says, why don't you drive my car? (laughs) And I smile at him, and then he says, you know, I probably shouldn't have had that last drink so fast. Would you mind? It'd be great. And I was like, I looked at him, and I looked at the Red Lobster girl, and she shrugs her shoulders, and I'm like, all right, yeah, sure, I'll drive your car. So I get in his vehicle, and as we pull out of the parking lot to start its way across the river, he turns to me and he says, listen, I really appreciate you driving. Would you also mind if we could just stop by my car dealership first so we could trade vehicles, because I really need my van for the morning? And I thought, like... That's like a super odd request, right? Like, it's also going to eat into our dance time. Um, But then he like leans, he's like, really, man, I really, you'd be doing me a huge favor. And I am a social worker. So I'm like, yeah, totally. We'll stop by the car dealership. So we start driving there. And as we're driving there, he's trying to get information out of me. And eventually he says, you know, do you have a boyfriend? And I say, well, it's complicated. Um, He recently asked me to marry him, and I said, no, I just graduated, you know, blah, 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 blah. I said, do you have a girlfriend? And without a beat, he says, God, no, I just broke up with that bitch. Now, I mean, it's not just because I'm a Mainer, but uh, I don't call people bitches. I don't, even the worst dates, you know? And I'm like, well, I'm sure you don't mean bitch. And he doubles down, he said, no, she's a goddamn fucking bitch. And he continues to defend how much of a bitch she is as we drive to the car dealership. And I'm really happy when I pull into that parking lot because the conversation ends and then we just get to go switch the keys. And as we open the door and we push it open, it's kind of empty. Apparently they just renovated the building and there's no lights and Tom crosses the room to a back corner and I stand sort of looking out, assessing, I don't know, the situation. (laughs) I see a white light snap on, and I can hear the sound of keys being pushed around a drawer. And then I see the same light click off in the reflection of the windows. And then I hear Tom come up behind me. And I feel him grab my hips, and he spins me around, and he plants this really heavy, uncomfortable kiss on my lips. And I'm I'm sort of taken aback, but I'm not shocked. I mean, we have been flirting all night. I am not surprised he's making a move. But the thing was, he totally lost me with the bitch comment, and I just want to go dancing. So I kind of be coy, and I'm like, that's nice, you know, peck, and then pull away. But then he grabs the back of my neck, and he's holding it like it's a pint back at the bar. And he's like, no, and he pulls me in closer. And I'm like, hey, hey, Tom, seriously, like, let's just go to the bar. And he grabs his other hand onto my shoulder. And now he, he's kind of got me like this, and he starts to push my body down. And I'm like, um, hey, Tom, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it is the first and only time that I've ever been scared with a man. And so I try to like position my body, and he's still holding me. And now he's telling me that my boobs belong to him. And then I start to wrestle. And the next thing is I'm laying on the floor and he's saying to me, shut up, stop crying. Back in Chris's apartment, I do start to cry. (laughs) And I know he can hear me because his loft has no walls except for the bathroom. (laughs) And I can't imagine what he is thinking while watching Modern Family. The girl he's just started dating is crying over a fork. And I, uh, I don't know what to do because I'm not ready to go downstairs. And so I try to muffle it with the pillow, but I'm, I'm crying pretty hard now. And I'm crying because I like him. I like him and I don't know how to tell him that I'm falling for him and that I'm not so good at relationships ever since my rape. You see, I don't blame everything in my life on that night and certainly not when it comes to relationships but I also don't think it's a coincidence that before my assault, I dated men, really good men, for multiple years. But after that night, my longest, most consistent relationship has been four months. And Chris and I are about to get to five, and I am freaking out. I'm freaking out because I don't know what comes next. But I do know that I'm going to end up having to tell him things about my past, 
I'm afraid he's going to find out that I still have panic attacks and that I flinch every time that someone says the word bitch near me and that there are moments, that, days that I wake up that I cannot find joy. But I like him. <laughs> and the thing is, I have to go downstairs, right? <laughs> but the other thing is, is that I am not ashamed now of my rape at 38. But I am ashamed of some of the things I did afterwards when I was broken. For example, the first man I slept with within that month after being raped was a drug addict on a floor with no sheets on a mattress. Shortly thereafter, I was dating men that just got out of prison because in both cases, neither of them knew me before. They didn't know when I was happy or I had confidence or ambition, and they certainly didn't seem to care if I did. And so I'm afraid he's going to find these things out and what he's going to think about me. But I actually think he'll understand those things. I'm more afraid he's going to find out the things I did to people who I did like, the other men that I fell in love with. The last person I felt as strongly as I do about Chris was this guy named Mike, and he was from Baltimore. In some ways, they were a lot alike. Um, they're both thin. They both wrote lean on Match.com. They're both balding. Except that Mike loved swing dancing, and he loved to throw parties. He thought travel, however, was going to D.C., whereas, you know, Chris goes to Iran. <laughs> but he was really wonderful. And the closer we got the more he started to figure out and the more I started to freak out like I am with Chris. And the more I freaked out, I started to pick these small, insignificant fights over things like forks like I am with Chris. And when that didn't work, I started to create more trouble. And the worst thing that I ever did to Mike was cheat on him while at a conference with a stupid man who I don't care about at all. And worse than that was not just that I cheated is that when I came back to Baltimore, I sat by the inner harbor with him and I begged him to forgive me. I gave him the most passionate speech about how what a huge mistake I had made. And then even further, I convinced him that he should let me move in with him because that's the solution to our problem, that if I lived with him, he could trust me. But on the day that I was supposed to move in, after we had already bought this beautiful teak dining room table, I woke up in a complete panic. I just watched the ceiling and looked at him on my right and then looked at the ceiling and then looked at him on my right and I thought, there is no way he's ever totally going to forgive me. And even if he doesn't, I won't forgive myself because I wouldn't want to be cheated on. And so rather than move my stuff into the house, I climbed into the cab of the U-Haul and I drove entirely in the opposite direction. The last time I heard from Mike was in an email on my Blackberry at BWI Airport I was standing by the baggage claim and it came through and I got so happy. I got so happy because the thing about Mike is just like Chris, they're both really kind and they both love to communicate. And I saw his name and I thought, oh my God, he's going to forgive me. And I clicked on it and when it opened, I don't remember anything else in that email except where he called me a narcissist and said that I had lost the ability to love. My hands shook so much when I called my brother that I could hardly type his number. And after I hung up the phone with my brother, I called four more friends trying to affirm that I was not, in fact, a narcissist, which I recognize is like totally narcissistic to do, but the thing was is that he wasn't wrong and I don't blame him. From his perspective, everything I did was narcissistic and self-centered and I was broken at the time. But unfortunately, the less broken I became, those words still hung with me that I was a narcissist and I could not love somebody and eventually I decided I was not a narcissist. I'm not. I proudly state that. But I could never really shake that fear that maybe I had lost the ability to love. And now, downstairs, I have what I believe is the absolute perfect man for me. And I'm doing everything that I've ever done to fuck it up. And I'm scared to go down and tell him that I haven't dated anybody for five months in 14 years, even though his last relationship was 10 years. But it's also clear that he's not coming upstairs. And I'm afraid if I tell him what I've done or tell him the way I've hurt people that I say I love, that even if he understands, he would leave because I think I would leave. <laughs> but there's no door to leave upstairs. So I walk down the stairs eventually and I chicken out and sit on the third step. And he looks over and he turns off Modern Family. <laughs> and he says, yes. <laughs> and I say, so um, that fight about the fork, it's not really about the fork. 
And he says, oh yeah, I know, I I just have no idea what it's about. And I take a breath and I say, I like you. I'm falling for you. And then I tell him about the four months and a little bit about my history. And when I stop talking, he looks at me and he doesn't say anything. But he doesn't look angry or upset. He just looks like he cares. And he says, like a principal in a school, he said, will you please come sit with me? And I stand up and I drag my body like across the room. (laughs) And I sit down next to him and he takes my hand and he said, babe, it's just a fork. We're good. And I say, but are we? I mean, are you sure? Because he doesn't know everything that I'm about to tell him or eventually going to tell him. And he says, babe, we're good. And he must be right because next month we celebrate our three-year anniversary. And last year I moved my stuff into a man's apartment for the first time at 40. And I have no idea if we're going to work out, but I hope we do. (laughs) But if we don't, I'm incredibly grateful to Chris because I didn't lose the ability to love. I just got lost there for a while. Thanks. is all for this week's episode folks this is ruby vell behind me now and we just heard from cheryl hamilton who you can find at CherylHamilton.com. we had stories edited on this episode by all three of our editors john lasala marty garcia and jeff barr now you know we're always looking for your story pitches and these stories can be about well, I mean, if, if you ever have a question about, ah, is this story appropriate? Or I don't feel like I've ever heard this kind of story on the show before. You can email me at kevin at risk show.com. But listen, we're always looking for all kinds of stories. Maybe you have a story about abortion or a woman's right to choose that you could pitch to us. Maybe you have a story about an outdoor adventure that became a life or death sort of crisis. Maybe you have a story about religion, about experiencing religion in a positive way rather than a negative way. You know, we're always looking for funny stories. Maybe you can just reflect on the funniest experiences you've lived through. Maybe you have a story about the thing that you've done that you're most ashamed of or wish you could turn back time and handle differently, you can pitch us all of those stories. If you go to the submissions page at risk-show.com, there's a video there that explains how to pitch us. There's an audio there that gives all kinds of good tips on how to prep a story for us. It's all at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. And if you want to learn anything about the storytelling training that we also do, that is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
people who have ordered the wrist book people who have ordered the wrist book there's patrick young and amanda nims and whitney starlight that's it that's that's all the people that we know of who have ordered the risk mickey ficken book so you better start ordering this book mickey fickers all right 42 42 is the number of copies of the book that you're gonna get for your friends for christmas and or fanica and very, very shortly after that is when you will review the risk book on Amazon. <laughs>